And finally, it's a great privilege and honour to have Steve Daughtry from Southover Church in Lewis. Uh, so let's give him a really warm welcome. He's going to be speaking to us. Yeah, my own church never clap when I come. <laughs> so thank you so much. That's a real, real encouragement. Uh, I bring you greetings uh, from the church on the south of town uh, called uh, Southover. Uh, may God bless you and, and your endeavors. And I've just so enjoyed worshiping with you already this morning and being part of your church community. Uh, I, if, you, if I may, I'd like to just let, ask you to indulge me for a minute because uh, news is breaking over the Southover congregations this morning that something that has been a vision and a dream for us for the last 18 months uh, is turning into a real and concrete plan. Uh, we're going public this morning with, with this idea of, of Trinity. There are three Anglican churches. There's Southover Church, there's Subcastro Church, and there's South Morning Church. Uh, and we are the leadership of the three churches uh, over the last 18 months has been praying about whether we should become one church, one mission, one leadership, sharing our youth ministry, our children's ministry, our men's ministry, our families' ministry, our outreach together. Um, and the leadership over the last two weeks of each of the churches have said, yes, we believe this is where God is leading us. This is what God is calling us to do. Uh, and uh, to go along with that, uh, the diocese has said, if you do this, then we will uh, help you uh, basically gut Subcastro Church and rebuild it from the inside out, um, and to make it a, it's really exciting, um, and to make it a real centre for the community in and around Pells and Landport, reaching out to the, to the north side of town. Uh, and so for the next two months, uh, the three congregations, or actually the six congregations uh, of, these, of these churches, are going to be praying together and, and thinking, you know, what, where is God in this for us? Is this what's right for these three churches and the kingdom of God in Lewis? And then in a, April, we will come together at our annual general meetings, uh, and we will formally decide to accept or reject the proposal from the leadership team. Uh, we believe God is in this. Uh, we believe that it's going to transform the ministry uh, of our church on the north side uh, of town. And we're very, very excited about being able to hire new staff as a result of this, not least a children and families worker to work in the three schools uh, and to create after-schools programs and to bring the gospel into uh, the three church schools uh, that are there. So we think God is in this and we would just ask you to pray for us because there are going to be lots of people um, wondering about how this will affect them. Uh, we may have to move our 10 o'clock congregation to 9.15. You know, Jesus never worshipped at 9.15. It was always 10 o'clock. Um, and, and some people just can't get their heads around that sacrifice. Um, and, and so, you know, for them, it will be just 15 minutes too far. Pray for us that we may have a sense of reality um, in all of this. It's great to be here. Uh, I want to preach on something that you and Southover have in common, uh, a truth that we hold of fundamental importance uh, that we passionately agree on. Uh, and the subject, I guess, was obvious, so I'd like to take you to the end of Galatians. Tom, I wonder if you would put it up for me, uh, if you're okay with that. Um, and I just want to read to you just a few verses, uh, and then I'm going to uh, preach to you from um, yeah, key, one of the key verses in verse 14. So Paul is writing this. He says, See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hands. 
those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. I wanted to preach something that was really, really important. You know, preachers always say that. They, they always come up to you uh, on a Sunday morning and say, this is a really important text. This is the text that we all really need to, to get into. I don't know if Rich does that. I don't know if Rich says, this is the text to end all texts that I want to preach on this morning. Uh, we preachers, we, we sort of have that once. Uh, and if Rich does that, then, then I forgive him because uh, I do the same. But actually, I have reasons to say to you this morning, this is the text that we really, really need to focus on, uh, because this is the last part of Paul's letter to the Galatians. And at the end of any letter or any essay or any sermon, you'd expect the writer to summarize up uh, what he's been saying. At the, any, any, any piece of advice I give my children, having lectured them for a whole hour, just as they're leaving the door, I sum it up all in one sentence, be home by 10.30. That's all I've been saying to you for the last hour. Okay. And I hope that they understand it. Uh, well, actually, I, I have reason to say that this is really, really great because uh, this, uh, Paul says in verse 11, see what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hands. Okay. So either Paul has been dictating to a secretary uh, and now he's pushed the secretary aside and taken up the quill and gone, I'm finishing this off. Okay, or he's been writing it all along, uh, and now he's gone into 36-point capital letters, triple bold. Um, but whichever way it is, Paul is saying, see how large these letters are? See what I'm about to write? This is the end of the letter, and this is the really, really important bits. And the text that I want to focus on this morning for us is verse 14. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what I want to boast about. Uh, this is what I want to glory in. This is what I would have drawn your attention to if England had not let that try in in the closing minutes of the rugby match yesterday. <laughs> I would have been boasting to you about the English rugby club. I would have been telling my children about how great the rugby match was, but I can't do that, sadly. But Paul says, this is what it's all about. This is what I want to glory in, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, the cross is central. There is nothing more important in human history. There is a BC and there is an AD. There is nothing more important in his life. And he says, you know, there should be nothing more important in ours too. And he's saying, this is here how you can understand whether you get what the cross is all about. He says, interestingly... Is it offensive? Does it cause persecution? And then finally he says, here is how the cross can become a living power 
to transform our life. Here is how the cross can become that cricket bat to knock away all the anxieties and all the fears and all the persecutions and all the difficulties in our life. So I want to talk about the impact of the cross on our life this morning. I want to say three things. The cross is central. The cross is offensive. And the cross is the power to transform our lives. Let's talk about this. The cross is of central importance. He says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The translation, may I never, is actually way too weak. What he's actually saying is, God forbid, may it never be, may I absolutely, under no circumstances, never ever do anything but this. It's strong words here. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying it's all about the cross in my life. You know, it's very common for people who don't really get Christianity to say, what really matters is not what you believe, but you know how you live. It's not about doctrine, it's not about beliefs, it's not about what you think of the incarnation, it's not about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. The ultimate thing, they might say, is whether we live like Jesus. The important thing, the only important thing, is whether we love our neighbor. The ultimate thing is whether you follow his teaching. They say it's not what you believe, actually, it's how you live. It's not what you believe about Jesus, they say. It's whether you live like Jesus. There are many people that say that. There are even Anglican vicars that say that. But Paul doesn't say that. He says, it's all about the cross. He doesn't say, God forbid that I should boast in anything else except the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't say, God forbid that I should boast in anything else about how cool a teacher Jesus is. Jesus is a cool teacher. But what he actually says is, this is what really matters. And let me show you why he says that. Firstly, I want you to look at Jesus' mission. How did Jesus see his mission? You might remember when Jesus said to Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, well done, full marks, you got that dead right. And then we read that from that moment on, Jesus began to show his disciples how he had to, no option, how he had to go to Jerusalem, suffer and be killed and rise from the dead on the third day. And Peter began to rebuke Jesus and say, no, you can't die. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Peter was fine thinking that Jesus was a great inspirational teacher. Peter was fine thinking that Jesus was a great spiritual leader, someone to show us how to live. He was okay with that. But as soon as Jesus said, actually, I am here to die, Peter says, no way. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe about what I've come to do, Peter. So long as you obey my teaching, so long as you love your neighbor, that's it, you've got it dead right. Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, Jesus said, don't you see that the main thing, my mission, my purpose, what I have come here to do is to die. And if you don't get that, Peter, if you're trying to make my agenda something different, then you are in the grip of Satan. So look about the mission of Jesus. But secondly, look at the Gospels. The Gospels are the biographies of Jesus' life. 
And as biographies go, they're really rubbish. Half the Gospel of John, half the Gospel, is dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life. Virtually half the book is all about Jesus' death. And as biographies go, that's got to be bonkers. Matthew, Mark, and Luke is exactly the same. They focus on his death. So all other great religious leaders, all other inspirational human teachers, all other biographies are about people's lives. But the Gospels focus on Jesus' death, not the Sermon on the Mount, not the Ten Commandments, not what he taught primarily, but what he had come to do primarily. Someone said to me last Tuesday, why doesn't the Bible talk about more about what we have to do in life? You know, I'm always struggling with the decisions that I have to make. I always have to sort of work out what it is that I have to do. Why doesn't it say in Hezekiah chapter 16, verse 32, Steve, don't watch the rugby, but instead go and talk to your kids instead? Why doesn't it say stuff like that? So I can know what to do when I have hard decisions. It's funny, you know, the Gospel of John is 28 pages long. I counted them. I'm very sad. But at the end of it, John says this. Jesus did many other things. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world wouldn't be big enough to hold the room for the books that would be written. I sort of get frustrated at that statement. Because here is a guy... Who could have written 28,000 books on Jesus' life? But he chooses to give us 28 pages, and he spends half of them on Jesus' death. Why? Because it's not Jesus' teaching that is central. It is his death. I'm not saying that Jesus' teaching is not important. Don't mishear me this morning. But I'm saying it is not central. Look at Jesus' mission. Look at the focus of the Gospels. And then thirdly, ask this question. What is it that we really need in our life? Did we really need God in Jesus to come to this earth to tell us how to live a better life? The Old Testament says, love your neighbor as yourself. Buddha said, love your neighbor. Do we really need another moral teacher to tell us the same stuff. Even if you grant that Jesus' teaching is the best in the world, even if you think it is the most finely tuned, moral, sensitive, well-balanced guidance in the whole world, did we really need that? I don't think so. Does this world need a better set of ethics? Or does it need a new heart? Do I need a finer tuned moral code... Or do what I really need is to know how to connect with God, how to know the one who made me, how to find a power to live well. And what Paul is saying is this, that power, that connection, that relationship is found through the cross, not in better moral teaching. Christianity is not primarily how to live well. It is primarily how to live with a God and connect with a God who will turn your life inside out, upside down, and give you the power for living. So if you are not a Christian here this morning, then the main thing I want you to know is the cross. It's what Jesus is all about.
And if you're not sure whether you are a Christian this morning, then the main thing that I want you to know, to know whether you're a Christian this morning, is the cross. Because when you get that, everything else follows. And if you are a Christian here this morning, the main thing I want you to know is the cross. Because Paul says, I am an apostle. I have written more theological books, Steve, than you've got hot dinners. And what I want to boast about, what I want to focus on, what I want people to know me as, is someone who loves what happened on the cross. So it's of central importance. So how can we know whether we understand the cross? Well, there's a test After he says, see what big letters I write, he says in verse 12, Tom, can you give me another slide, please? Thank you, that's perfect. We're not talking to each other. Thank you. (laughs) We have a test. Verse 12, those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. In Galatians 5, verse 11, Paul says, Brothers, if I'm still preaching persecution, why am I still, sorry, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. Here is the test. Here is whether we know, whether we know what the cross is all about. Here is whether we know whether we've experienced the grace of God. It's because we know the cross is offensive. We know what the cross is all about, when we see how absolutely offensive it is. I would go so far as to say that if you've never seen the offense of the cross, you've never really understood it. If you haven't understood it, then you will never have the power of God to transform your life. You'll never understand grace. You'll never understand the depths of God's love for you. You'll never experience transforming power until you have come to grips with how utterly offensive the cross is. Let me tell you why. The philosopher Sir Alfred Ayer once said that the Christian doctrine of the cross is intellectually contemptible and morally outrageous. Bertland Russell called it a doctrine of cruelty. Steve Chalk, a one-time darling of evangelical Christianity, is so aware that the message of the cross offends people that he's backed away from it and called its purpose cosmic child abuse. But Paul is saying you can't avoid the cross being offensive. And sometimes it'll even bring persecution. Why does he say that? Well, firstly, because the cross is offensive by what it says about Jesus. Look, I want you to imagine that your house is burning down. But I also want to imagine that you've rescued all the important things to you, your computer, your hi-fi, and your children, in that order. (laughs) And you're watching the house burn down, and there's nothing you can do. When suddenly a stranger runs up to you and says, Hey, let me show you how much I love you, Steve. And he runs into the fire, and he jumps onto the fire, and he dies horribly. Do I turn to my neighbor, and I say to them, wow, do you see how much that guy loves us? Or do we say, that was crazy. That guy's sick. Sadly, that guy must have been mentally unwell. But if, on the other hand... 
You're standing outside watching your house burn down. And one of your children are trapped on the top floor. And nobody can get them out. And the firefighters are standing there and they say it's hopeless. And your neighbors are standing around you and they are in despair. And then a stranger comes up to you and says, see how much I love you, and runs into that burning house and runs up the stairs and lowers your child down, but at the cost of his own life. Then you turn to your neighbor and you say, wow, did you see how much he loved me? So let me ask you this question. Do you believe that good people can connect with God just by being good, just by being religious, just by praying, just by seeking him? Do you think you can be reconciled to God without God having done what he did through Jesus on the cross? If you do, then Jesus didn't need to die. If you do, then Jesus didn't need to die. And then his death is not noble and good or heroic. It is stupid and crazy and idiotic and offensive. If you believe that good people can connect with God, know God, be acceptable to God without Jesus' death, then God sending his son to die is not a good thing at all. It is a terrible thing to do. If Jesus is just giving us some profound spiritual gesture, see how much I love you, but it isn't absolutely, absolutely necessary. My friends, it is repugnant and it is sick. If it is not absolutely necessary, it is an offensive concept. But if the cross is necessary then actually it's also offensive because of what it says about you and me. The cross says this to me. Steve Daughtry, you are not perfect. You are not good by God's standards. You are not naturally patient and kind and loving and generous. Steve, you have broken God's laws of selfless love more times than anybody can count, you no more deserve to know God and be connected with God than a bunch of random bricks could be called a profound piece of art. Steve, the reality is that you are selfish and that you are self-focused and that you are egocentric and you are a sinner, Steve, in need of a savior. And I want to say to you, when we first hear that and take that to heart, that is a difficult thing to hear. I was talking with someone three weeks ago when they said they were a Christian, uh, and um, I said this to them, and they wrote to me a week ago saying, Steve, I cannot accept that I'm selfish or self-centered, and I quote, I find that offensive. We're still talking to each other, by the way. But the cross is offensive. Because it says we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it says we are all selfish. And if this is news to you this morning, then, then I'm sorry, but it's true. Measured by God's plumb line, we, you, me, all of us in this room, we are crooked. We are way off center. Measured by God's target of perfection, I fall so far short and so do you. Measured by God's standards, we are nowhere near fit enough to encounter Jesus. So if I think I am basically good, 
If I think I am not too bad, if I think that good people can get to heaven without Jesus, then the cross is offensive because it says I am absolutely wrong. I am, you are, we are, this world is, this society is, our culture is, made up of broken people who are sinners in need of a saviour. And if you find that offensive this morning, I am sorry, but there is a reality and a truth in that that is worth, worth looking at. The cross is offensive if it is unnecessary. The cross is offensive if it is necessary because of what it says about us. And then the cross is offensive to every religious philosophy. Paul was in trouble in Galatia because they were saying, yes, you need Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised as well to be acceptable to God. You need the cross and you need something else. If you want to be acceptable to God, they were saying, you need the cross and you need to be a little bit religious on top of that. The cross is good, but it's not good enough. You need the cross and you need to be religious too. They were a peddling a cross plus something else makes you acceptable to God philosophy. And Paul was saying, nope, all you need is the cross. You don't need religion. All you need is the cross. You don't need the cross and religion. You just need the cross. You don't need religion without the cross. You just need the cross. And people were persecuting him for that. They were saying, you're turning upside down everything we hold to be true. And we hate you for it. Paul was in trouble with the Jewish community because... The cross is not optional. Every other religious philosophy in the world says this. Here is a way of knowing God and you don't need the cross. Here is a way for you to come to God if you try really hard, if you're a little bit more religious, if you practice praying and you play with some crystals and you meditate on the top of a mountainside or you keep these five ideas true to your heart. Here is a way of connecting with God and you don't need the cross. You don't have to know grace. You don't have to know mercy. You don't have to be saved because you can save yourself. Do this, do that, do the other, be sincere, and you can be saved. Every religion says that, apart from Jesus, who says, I've done it all for you. What you need is the cross and nothing else. Because here's the logic. Either we are all hopelessly lost and therefore Jesus' death on the cross is necessary and profound, but offensive to every other philosophy. Or Jesus' death on the cross is not absolutely necessary because there are loads of different ways to God, in which case the cross is crude and repugnant and abusive. But the one thing that we can't say is this, Jesus died on the cross, and that is wonderful, but I think all good people can find God without it. That's impossible. If you want to earn your own salvation, if you want to be good enough for God in your own strength, the cross is offensive because it says you can't. If you think you're basically good enough for God, the cross is offensive because it says you aren't. If you think there are other ways to connect with God without the cross, it is offensive because it says there isn't. Do you see how offensive the cross is? Do you see it? Because when you see it, the cross changes from being the most offensive thing 
in the world to the most beautiful power for living. The cross is central. The cross is offensive. But that offensiveness becomes the most powerful force for beauty in our lives. Because we see that what God does for us, we could never have done for ourselves. We see that just the right time, while we were still powerless, God became the power in our lives. This morning at communion, I gave bread to our 8 o'clock congregation, and I said these words, the body of Jesus needed to be broken for you. Whoever you are this morning, whatever you think of yourself this morning, the body of Jesus needed to be broken for you. And when we see that, when we see that God does for us what we could not do for ourselves, there is no other way. We get to say with Paul, wow, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world's. You see, when you see there is no other way to connect with God, when you see that in Gethsemane, Jesus asked his father, God, is there any other way? Father, is there any other way I can avoid this? I would rather do anything else in the world except what you have asked me to do and die on the cross. And God says, my son, there is no other way. When we see the agony when we see the drops of blood, when we look at the terror in Jesus' eyes, when we understand what it meant for the Son of God who knew no sin to become sin for us, when we see ourselves as we truly are, and yet despite that, God comes to us to die in our place, that offense becomes the very grace and mercy that we need to understand in our lives. There really is, there really was no other way under heaven by which men and women and children can be saved except through what Jesus has done. The gospel then becomes the most inclusive and beautiful call to everybody in the world. Because on the cross Jesus says, come to me all who are thirsty. And you don't have to be religiously magnificent to come to me. And you don't have to be good to come to me. And you don't have to keep any special laws or reach a particular standard or have a particular theological knowledge to come to me. Just come. Come as you are. Come with all your baggage and all your brokenness. Come. Because that's why I'm here. You just need empty hands. That's all it needs. And the cross becomes the most incredible statement of value and significance and love written over our lives. Do you know that? Just asking you to think this morning. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because when you do, verse 14, the power of the cross is that the world becomes dead to you. What does that mean? It means this, the world has no ultimate power over you because of the cross. Are you worried? Are you scared right now? Do you feel lonely? Are you angry? How the world impacts us 
depends upon where we find our ultimate value. I have to say, yesterday afternoon, about seven o'clock, I was really pretty grum. I'd watched England play rugby, from the sublime to the ridiculous, yeah? They'd lost in the last two minutes, and I, I was sad. I was sad because I wanted to boast. I wanted to glory. I wanted to put my ult. I didn't want to put my ultimate value, but I, but I enjoy England winning rugby. This is what the cross says to us. Ultimately, I look at the cross and I see my value in what God has done for me, not in what I can do for myself. So my value is not whether I make the next promotion or not. My value is not based in my bank balance. My value is not based in the size of my house or whether I'm married or whether I am children. My value is placed in the God who is willing to die for me because he thinks I am that valuable. If you say I look at the cross and I, th- I see how much God thinks of me, what other people think of you at work or at home or at school doesn't matter as much because if God is for you, who can be against you? If the God of the universe thinks you're great and he does, What does it matter what other people say about you? If I look at the cross and I see in the cross a calling for my purpose and I see his love and I see his promises come true and I see he is real, do you know what? I become bulletproof. I become life-proof. I become death-proof. The world is dead to me. The world may look at Jesus on the cross and say that is offensive. The world may look at Jesus hanging on the cross and be repulsed by it. But for me, I look at the cross and it is the most beautiful statement of love and value and significance written over my life that I could imagine. At 15, I believed in the possibility of God. I believed Jesus was possibly the Son of God. But I wasn't convinced, and I didn't know, and it had no power in my life. One Sunday evening, I was in church, and I'd spent the whole service sitting next to a pretty red-headed girl, wondering if I stood a chance, to which any objective understanding would be, not really, Steve. The preacher had spoken for about 45 minutes, and had ended his, with his challenge, if Jesus be God, and if God died in Jesus that you might be forgiven. If he loved you, why would you ever not want to follow him? And that made sense to me. I have to tell you, it made sense to me at 15. If Jesus was God, then it would be right to follow him because I'd owe my existence to him. That made sense. It made sense to me to follow him because if Jesus is God, then he knows what life is all about. So he understands how I was made and how it should be lived. So it would make sense to follow him. If he was God and he died for me and he loved me that much, well, perhaps the least I could do was follow him. That all made sense. But I still wasn't going anywhere or doing anything with it. But it was a communion service. And in this particular church, what they did with communion was they passed the bread and the wine uh, up and down the aisles. And you could individually decide to take the bread or to leave the bread. Take it or leave it choose. Take it or leave it. 
I was going to leave it. But then the preacher said something that actually rocked me. And I'm convinced he was looking at me when he said this. But he said this, how long are you going to leave Jesus hanging on the cross while you make up your mind? How long are you going to leave God hanging there while you, Steve, decide whether it is convenient for you, whether it is a priority for you to follow him or not? And then it really hit home. If Jesus was God, if he died for me, if he really loved me that much, then actually I need to respond. I couldn't just keep putting it off. I couldn't keep God in the waiting room while I decided whether I was important enough to accept him. And I knew that if push came to shove, and if I had to make a decision because the bread was coming down the aisle, I would have to make it for God. And if that was true, then there was no point, no point, no, no point waiting. No sense in delaying. So I took communion. I said, okay, God, Let's give this a go. If you're real, I will know. If this makes sense, I will find out. If I can really know you, then this is what I want. This is what I want. And I made a commitment and I took communion. And I wasn't going to tell anyone, by the way, but my dad saw me take communion. Uh, I don't know how he did that because he was at the back of church and I was at the front. Um, But on the way home on the A3, he stopped the car in Tolworth Girls School, Layby. Uh, and he said, son, you took communion tonight. You're not really supposed to take communion unless you're a Christian. And I said, well, dad, I became a Christian tonight. Um, and he smiled and he looked at me and he said, do you understand what that means? Do you understand that Jesus died for you? I said, yes. He said, you understand that he did that for you. There's nothing that you shouldn't do for him. Uh, and I said, yes. And he said, good. In that case, I want you to go to your form tutor on Monday morning, tomorrow morning. Tell him you've become a Christian Tell all your friends around you, you become a Christian, do that by lunchtime, come back and tell me what they said. (laughs) I have to say, that is the greatest piece of advice my father has ever given me. If you're not a Christian here tonight, why are you waiting? You're going to leave Jesus hanging on the cross for another week while you decide whether or not you are important enough to make a decision. The cross has the power to change your life. Count Zinzendorf was the founder of the Moravian Church. He became a Christian this way. He was standing in front of a huge picture of Jesus on the cross And underneath it were these words, if he has done this for you, what would you not do for him? And Zinzendorf looked at this picture and he realized the answer to that was anything. I will do anything. And if that chimes for you this morning, then I pray that you may make the cross central in your life and that you will join me and Paul, and countless Christians boasting about it, telling your friends, 
sharing your story, letting it be the power in your life. Let's pray. Lord God, I want to thank you that this message has gone across the whole world. There are generations and billions of people that have found this incredible love to be true and life-transforming. And I pray this morning, Lord God, that in this church there will not be a single soul who will be so offended by what you have done that they don't give their lives to you. I pray that every soul will be so moved by what you have done for us that they will give their life to you wholeheartedly, that they will stand up for you, that they will come out of the woodwork for you, that they will make a decision even this morning to live for you, that your power and your love and the significance and the value that you place in us will make us life-proof and death-proof to live with you forever. Amen.